Hello. Welcome to episode two of Double-Edged Stories. I'm David Surchak. I'm Randy Skaggs. And our theme for today is growth. Um, Situations where you either choose to grow or you're sort of forced to grow. Or even have a growth. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay. Technically, yes. Yeah. That's that's there. We've got literal. We've got... Um, the figurative, figurative yeah. uh, which is the one most people think of. We're all over the place with, with growth uh, Lots today. Of growth. <laughs> so um, if this is your first time listening to our podcast, um, this is a compilation of some of the best stories from our live show yeah. that we have here in Louisville. Um, Kentucky. Kentucky. Every couple of months or so. Uh, you want to tell them a little bit about the show, Dave? I Sure. Um, so yeah, Double Edged Stories started in September 2017. And um, started by me, David Surchak, and Randy Skaggs were the co-producers and co-hosts. We're also married, just FYI. Yeah, that's true, <laughs> uh, despite her rogue last name. And um, <laughs> we do 5, 10, and 15-minute stories, so you get like almost like a story slam type vibe, while also you get like a longer deep dive type vibe. So today, we're going to have that setup. We're going to have a 5-minute, a 10-minute, and 15-minute story. They're not all from the same show. We're kind of picking ones. We're mixing it up. It's like a remix. It is a remix. Yeah. And, you know, our show is curated, um, and we talk a lot about the moth. And if you don't know what that is, um, I'm so sorry. You you should know what that is. Um, it is sort of the storytelling um, grand dom, if you will. Yeah. Um, so check that out. It's a wonderful show. And a lot of these people got their start in the moth. And including then, us. Including us. And we just decided, you know, why not take some of the stars of that scene and do a show that's very different from the moth, but keeping that same sort of true storytelling vibe. I do want to say, as the um, as the middle school teacher of the crew here, I, I teach in JCPS uh, Middle School, and uh, we forgot to tell you in our last episode that there is a PG-13 warning. This is a live show. We don't censor our storytellers, so you might hear a curse word here or there on our show. Um, so if you have children, just be aware of that. We are not at the point in our lives where we know how to bleep those out yet. Yeah, if you have pearls, clutch them. Yes. Uh, if you have a child nearby, cover their ears at exactly the right moments, or just listen to it on headphones. And be ready to gasp. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, these stories really are, are very mild in that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's been about three weeks since our last podcast. True. Um, we are, you know, we are both teachers on our summer vacation, and we just took our kids um, with us to St. George Island in Florida. We got there, we left right before the hurricane rolled in. Yeah. Uh, so we lucked out, and uh, we had a wonderful vacation, but we're excited to get back into podcasting and uh, get ready for our next show, which will be in the fall. Yeah, we're planning to do these podcasts every couple of weeks because... I've been told uh, that's how you do it, and that's how you build an audience and all that. Um, and we do the show, like Randy said, it's it's about every two months to like two and a half months, because, you know, we, we don't want to burn ourselves out over yeah. here. We're like British TV. Yes. Like, you know, there'll be five seasons of The Office and, and 12, 12 episodes. episodes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're um, the British TV of American storytelling ooh, and podcasting. that makes us sound really cool. It does. The accents are the giveaway. Yeah, that's not totally true. British. So today's episode will feature stories by uh, Nini Lasley, Sean yes. Reeves, and me, Randy Skaggs, threw in one of one of my stories as well. Um, it's going to be a f- fabulous episode. We're really excited about this, um, and I feel ready to jump right in to Nini's story. Cool, yeah. So Nini um, is a friend that we met through storytelling, and 
She's just, you know, a delight to watch on stage. She's also a uh, Jefferson County, which is the county Louisville's in, public school teacher. And she's been on the Moth Story Hour. And this was a story from our second show, which was November 2017. Mm -hmm. The themes were um, Birds of a Feather and Flying Solo. And Nini's, I believe, was part of the Flying Solo half of the show. Mm -hmm. And the show started with uh, Randy dressed like a pilot and me running on stage in a turkey costume. Amelia Earhart, to be specific. Very specifically. And I was just a turkey. And uh, it was an attention-getting stunt that we felt was important to us at the time. And we've dropped that. <laughs> I, I miss it a little bit, to be honest with you. I love costumes, but it's like we never got the, the roar of laughter that we thought we would. Maybe it just... No, again, that first time it went pretty well. That's true, but yeah. yeah. Regardless, um, we are going to jump right into Nini's fabulous story, and we hope you enjoy. Hey. Um... I love my kids. I feel like I should just say that because you may hear something tonight that might make you want to call CPS. (laughs) Please don't. They love me. I love them. A matter of fact, just about a year ago, I was in my kitchen pretending like I can cook, and I was trying to hurry up and bake some stuff, and I couldn't find the sugar. So I was trying not to panic. I was trying to just get it done. So I'm just, okay, when I try not to panic, I sing a song. So I was like, give me, where my sugar? Where my sugar? Right, just in the kitchen. And then all of a sudden, I heard these little feet. Here you go, mommy. And just plants the biggest kiss on my thigh. Aww. He loves me. But it has not always been that way. Um, okay, you know how you go for the ultrasound, and they're telling you what the baby's going to be. You're supposed to be all excited for this moment. But when they tell me I'm going to have a boy for my second child, I just start crying, uncontrollably crying. And I'm happy to have a baby. I mean, I love my husband. And, you know, we have one and a half. Like, I'm I'm excited. But I just started crying. My husband's like, what is wrong with you? I said, I don't know what to do with a boy. I mean, I can remember my little nephew bringing me a transformer. And he's like, change it, ain't Nene? And I'm like, he does it by himself on TV, like, <laughs> figure it out. And he brings these hot rods. I'm like, once you push it, so what? Like, it just rolls. I don't get it. So I'm super nervous about having this child. And he lives up to all those nerves because he makes me very, very fat. Like, I would go through McDonald's and buy two cheeseburgers, and by the time I'm at the, like, I'm trying to pull out of the, onto Breckenridge Lane, I'm turning back around to go get another one, and I hate hamburgers, and it gave me a lot of heartburn, sleepless nights, and he's finally here, and my husband's job uh, was super sympathetic, and let him have, like, a full two weeks off, he only actually had to take one full of vacation, they gave him one, and it was great, because he was there, and every time my son cried, or Shane would come pick him up, and instantly he would stop. You know, they say kids love their mothers because their mothers are soft and they're pillowy and they have all this cushion. Um, And my husband is even skinnier than me, so I didn't understand why he was so calm and cool with my husband but would lose his mind with me. And this was all the time. I couldn't even get him to breastfeed. Like, I know this now. At the time, they just eat a little, then they go to sleep. 
then they eat a little more and they go to sleep. But in my mind, he hates me. Like there's fungus in my breast milk. There's some reason he's not drinking. And to top it off, when people would come to visit, he would just scream and nobody could calm him down but his daddy. And I just, as a woman, I was humiliated and I didn't want anybody to come over because I couldn't handle my child. My baby, uh, my daughter who was older is so used to being right by my hip, but I had to push her aside because I'm trying to bond with the baby. I just felt like the worst mother. So the first day, I had to go solo. My husband knew I'd had it hard, and he kept saying, you know, I can take, an, I can take another day. This was a Monday. It's okay. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I've had a child, sir. I'm good, you know. <laughs> and so he leaves, and it is the hell that you are probably guessing. He screamed, and not like baby, eh, eh. Like, imagine the movie Jurassic Park. Do you remember that one little scientist, the little condescending scientist that saw that cute little dinosaur, and he's like, oh, what a cutie, and the dinosaur goes, bah, like that. That was so fun. Like, all day, all day. And I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, I can do it, it's okay, I can do it, and I'm staying up. By Wednesday, I called my husband and just, I couldn't even say anything to him. He's like, I'm coming home. So he took the next couple of days off with me. And that next Monday, I was just determined, y'all. And so I was like, come on, child. You are going to eat. I am mother. You are son. This is happening. <laughs> and I put him up there. And he clenches on for dear life. And I said, you little sugar. Except I didn't say that word. And I put him down. And I was mad. And then I got mad at myself for being mad, like I was so upset. And I was just like, I set him in his little playpen and I went and took a break and I had a, I had a drink. Don't tell anybody, <laughs> even though I just told you. I just needed to calm my nerve. I didn't want to call my husband. Everybody just kept saying, it's gonna be okay, but it wasn't okay. And I needed to make it okay. So I went back and I was like, we gonna, you and I gonna come to Jesus, sir. We're gonna figure this out. So I picked him up and I looked him in the face and I said, son, you are going to drink, then you're going to sleep, and then we're going to be okay. And of course, he starts screaming. And so I'm just like, okay, calm down. Just whatever you do, don't put him down. Just rock him, hold him, be calm, don't put him down. And he eventually, he does cry himself to sleep. So I take this as a victory, and I look at him, and I say, I knew you loved me. I knew you loved me. And you, I would love to say that that's the end of the story and that I felt like, you know, Everything was perfect and rosy, and it wasn't. After that, he bit the other side another day. And, um, but that time, whenever he looks at me, like that time he ran to me and hugged my leg and gave me kisses, my son has the biggest cheeks, and he dimples those little eyes. And his favorite things to say now are, I love you, Mommy. You so pretty, Mommy, and all those beautiful things. And he couldn't say that when he was a baby. But after we had that come to Jesus meeting, I saw a lot more of those little smiles. And I realized I wasn't in it. Even though I was home by myself, I wasn't home by myself. I was home with my baby. Thanks. You know, Nini, they've done studies that say as long as you feel safe enough to drive, it's okay to drink and breastfeed. I'm just saying my children are fine, so maybe that's evidence that it's okay. So. I'm not okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Your mom didn't breastfeed, so. Oh, uh, no. She was like, nurse, yeah. It was, 
That's how it rolled in 72. Nurse. Here's a pill, and here's some formula. Um. Okay, so our... So you got to hear a little bit of our commentary there at the end of, uh, of Nini's story. That's um, the magic of the live show. <laughs> um, which was taped, by, or recorded, but, oh gosh, how old do I sound when I say taped, by the way? Uh, we scratched it on the tablet. <laughs> we, we had a stone and we just engraved it. Um, but at the Bardstown here in Louisville, which yeah. is a great space, um, great food and... Um, and they, we used to be in their lounge and we, you know, got a little too big for the lounge, which is a good problem for us, but we really, they were a great space. We miss recording there. Now I doubt, now I'm not sure we were too big for the lounge, but I found it kind of crowded, but it was, it was really cozy. Um, yeah, our next storyteller is, uh, is a really cool, cool guy named Sean Reeves and Sean, um, approached me at a show at Headliners that Randy was in. I believe it was when you were in the Me Too show. Yes. Oh, yes. It, it may have been either that or expressing motherhood. And this, It was Me Too. It was mm-hmm. Me Too. And this guy comes up to me, and he's like, oh, hey, you know, nice to meet you. And he introduced himself. Well, you know, I'm interested in storytelling, too, but I've never done it before. And, you know, suffice to say, I don't get a lot of conversations like that, so I didn't really know what to make of it. And says that, okay, well, you know, reach out. And much to my surprise, he actually did. And he had a really cool story, and we worked on it together, and he was the nicest person. Yeah. And a real actor. So Sean is, I might as well tell you a little bit about Sean Reeves. He is an actor, and he spent a lot of time and had a lot of good roles doing it. And he's also a school counselor in Lexington, Kentucky. So he had a very methodical and professional approach to his story that was in some ways antithetical to how I do it because I do not memorize line for line. And I will say, I think that's the beauty of storytelling. There's not one way to do it. And some, you know, stories are like Sean's, like they are methodical and kind of beautiful. And just the, you know, his voice is fabulous. And sometimes you get people that really are, you know, speaking from, um, you know, from the cuff, is that the expression? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm off a the cuff. Off the. Uh, it's from, from from the cuff. Uh, from the hip. You shoot from the hip, and you speak off the cuff. I'm gonna shoot from the cuff. <laughs> why do people Next. find English so confusing? I That's don't know. Um, but yeah, he did such a great job. This was from our uh, May 2018 show. The theme was Shoots and Storms. Which was recorded at Monic Beer Company. And that's where our shows take place now in the right. upstairs space at Monic. Uh, again, great food. Yeah, delicious beer. Sure. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. You follow us on Facebook. Make sure you know when our next show is going to be and what our themes are going to be. Um, but yeah, without further ado, uh, let's hear Reeves. Sean's story. So... It's a surreal feeling being told that you're so radioactive that you've become a public health risk and you have to be sequestered in a lead-lined hospital room. I was told that if I put a spoon in my mouth, it would become so radioactive that I had to throw it away because it would be too contaminated for others to use. I couldn't hug my six-year-old son, Dylan, because it would expose him to unsafe levels of radiation emitting from my body. But that was my life in the summer of 1997 when I was being treated for thyroid cancer. I was 34 when this adventure began. My loved one, my wife Felicia, said, what's that lump on your neck? Okay, full disclosure, she was kissing it at the time. <laughs> but she, said, she stopped abruptly and said, tilt your head back, swallow. Uh, does that hurt? And I said, no, it doesn't hurt, confident that that would ease her mind. It didn't. She happens to be a nurse. So she said, she kept squeezing and poking my neck, saying, what does that feel like? 
I said, well, it feels like I'm trying to swallow while someone is choking me. <laughs> What's the big deal? She said, well, smartass. Okay, she didn't say smartass, but I could hear it in her voice. This could be something serious, like, you know, cancer. By this point, I could tell that she was really nervous, so I became a lot more sincere. Look, loved one, I don't know what this is, but there's no way I've got cancer. Thirteen days later, I had my first surgery. The initial fine needle biopsy said atypical cells, but not cancer. The frozen tissue biopsy they did during the first surgery, same result, non-cancerous. But just to be sure, they were going to send some tissue samples off to the thyroid specialist in the area. A week later, we went and met with Dr. Ositinsky, the surgeon, and asked him about the pathology reports. He said the results were inconclusive, so they sent tissue samples to Stanford University, the Mayo Clinic, and the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, D.C. I said, you mean the Mayo Clinic as in the Mayo Clinic? The Armed Forces Institute of Pathology? I suddenly felt like I was in the middle of an X-Files episode. <laughs> I, I kind of half chuckled and said, is this standard, standard operating procedure? He kind of half chuckled back and said, no, this is a bit unusual. And then he got more somber. He said, the results indicate a partially encapsulated follicular or papillary carcinoma. So, wait, carcinoma, that means cancer. So for the first time it was official. But hearing those words, I was actually relieved. I wasn't happy, but I was relieved. The wait was over and I finally knew what I was up against. As we left the doctor's office, I turned to Felicia. Are you okay? She turned back. Do I have a choice? I chose to try to educate myself. I read Felicia's medical textbooks and I did some research on this new information sharing system called the World Wide Web. <laughs> Remember, it was the 90s. I, I became particularly enamored by books that had titles like The Cancer Conqueror because they told these stories of people who had beaten cancer and lived past some five or 10 year survival rate. At first, those stories really inspired me. And then they pissed me off because I thought, do I have to wait five years before I can call myself a cancer survivor? And what if cancer kills me? Does that mean I'm a failure? How soon till I can say I beat cancer and what criteria should I use? And then I remembered something, something that I've come to understand as the most important interaction of my life. I was a sixth grader, a student at Our Lady of the Rosary, a Catholic school in the small town of Green Hills outside Cincinnati, Ohio. And our teacher, Mrs. Purvis, gave us an assignment, interview somebody and write an article about the person we interviewed. So, and she said, find somebody interesting. So being a procrastinator, I waited until the night before the assignment was due and I went to my mom. Mom, I've got this assignment I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to interview somebody, and we're supposed to find somebody interesting. I can't think of anybody interesting, so can I just interview you? <laughs> yeah, I know. Now, I'm, I'm the baby of seven kids. I'm the baby of seven kids. Remember the whole Catholic thing. So, so by the time I was 12, she had pretty much seen and heard it all. So without missing a beat, she said, sure, what would you like to know? So I asked her my series of scripted questions, and much to my surprise, she actually started to sound interesting. <laughs> she grew up on a farm in Lexington, Kentucky. She did theater and dance. Uh, she played the harp and was a founding member of the Central Kentucky Youth Symphony Orchestra. She even sang with jazz greats on the banks of the Mississippi River at a New Orleans jazz festival. And then she kind of casually said, I probably could have been famous, a big star. <laughs> wow, now we're getting somewhere. 
but then it hit me. She wasn't famous. She wasn't a big star. So I asked her this question. Mom, does it bother you that you weren't a success? So remember, she'd seen it all. So with a poise and a confidence that I couldn't comprehend, she said, I am a success. I wanted to get married and have a big family. I did what I set out to do. Clearly, she didn't understand the question. <laughs> no, mom, a success. You said you could have been famous, a big star. Does it bother you that you weren't a success? My education continued. I didn't want to be famous. I didn't want to be a big star. I wanted to have a big family, and I did what I set out to do. At 12 years old, I had no idea what she was talking about. A little over two decades later, that lesson saved me. Facing thyroid cancer, my mom's wisdom came back to guide me. I am a success, she had said, because we get to define success on our own terms. It really was that simple. Would I have to wait five years to call myself a cancer survivor? Not a chance. So to the astonishment of friends and loved ones, I started telling people that I had beaten cancer even before I had the second surgery. I would say, I'm not all clear, I still have cancer. I've just decided that I've beaten it because I'm not gonna let it control how I live my life. In, in short, I declared victory. So yes, I still had to have a second surgery. I still had to face multiple hospitalizations, and I still had to drink enough radioactive iodine to make me a public health risk and get sequestered in a lead-lined room. But rather than something to dread, each of those experiences became something to embrace as part of my life's adventure. For me, success was not going to be based on what happened in my body, but what happened in my being. So success was writing a book called Cancer at 34, Life's Next Big Adventure. Success was going back to work less than 12 hours after being released from the hospital following my second surgery. Success was finally getting to keep a commitment to take my six-year-old son, Dylan, to Discovery Zone, even when I was hypothyroid and could barely function. I declared victory two years before I got the all clear. I am a success. Thanks, Mom, and thank you for listening. And just in case it hasn't dawned on you, you can define your own success as well. Love and hugs, I'm Sean. All right, yeah, that was a really, really cool night. Um, one thing that you may not know, that night Sean's mom was actually in the audience and they carried her up the stairs in a wheelchair mm -hmm. and uh, I got to meet her after the show and it was, it was really cool. And my mom had actually died not terribly long before then so to get to see Sean, you know, tell this really meaningful story to his own mother, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. You know, it was really cool. It was beautiful. I love that um, theme of defining your own success. I feel like since I entered my 40s, I've, I feel more and more like I get to decide what is, you know, what makes my life successful. And I'm no longer trying to achieve the other things that, you know, the outside world tells me I need to achieve. And to me, success could even be just like, literally chilling out with our kids for a whole day because yeah. that means you know successful parenting and um anyway so i just i think that's a really important theme for people to hear yeah it actually meant a lot to me because you know i've been going through big career transitions mm -hmm. and you know how do i compare myself to my peers well that's kind of a non-starter for me you know because right. They're at all these different levels of success. Mm -hmm. I mean, that we're even doing this is kind of success. I want to set the stage for you really quick. Oh yeah. We're, we're in our we're in our dining room. 
Yep. Um, <laughs> and it's a nice day, but our kids are looking at screens. Yes. And we had to move our dog outside because she was barking. Yes. And so Double Edge Studios may not be the deluxe uh, accommodation you imagine right now. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you have this <laughs> incredible studio loft in your head. Uh, but no, we are, we're in our little house in the Highlands um, with our cat cleaning himself. Um, and my empty coffee cup, which is really the saddest thing um, you could ever <laughs> see. Um, it, you know, this defining success your own way is actually a good lead up into the next story, which is a story by me. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're going to see how it was about a time in my life where um, I took a road I never thought I would take. And it's uh, it's been incredible. But um, A figurative I'll, road. A fig- yes, it was not a literal road. But, um, Call back. So I'll let you talk about me so that I don't sound like I'm bragging about myself, if that's okay. Yeah, heaven forbid anyone brag about themselves. I'm a Southern I'm, I'm lady. The I don't do that. All these people that are on <laughs> podcasts are like, and me, and then me again. Yeah, um, yeah so Randy um, is, uh, you know, really quick, a teacher and has been with great success for about the past 16 years. 17. Pardon <laughs> me. Excuse me. 17. Clearly, I'm not a math teacher. Um <laughs> And in addition to being the co-producer, co-founder, and co-host of our show, which is the most important credit, of course. she's been on the Moth Podcast, and she's been on stage at the Moth Ball on NYC, and, uh, and won a Moth Grand Slam. So even though we don't seek external validation in our lives, yes, um, we, do. we actually enjoy external validation and talking about it. <laughs> so this is, you know, a really cool and in some ways introspective story from Randy that, that um, closed out our show, and I don't even remember what show it was. Um, but we can very quickly tell you what show that was um, because we have technology to help us. Oh, it was actually the same show as oh Sean's, um, Shoots and Storms. So you were Shoots that night. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, and Sean was Storms. And it is a deeply personal story. I, I do get into some, some territory, a uh, little bit of a trigger warning, you know, um, in terms of suicide. I think it's important to, to give people a heads up if that's coming down the bend. Um, nothing too nothing too intense, but you know. Anyway. Yeah, but it, it was you know very well done and professional as Randy tends to be, and, and I'm really glad that we're going to share it with you. So, ladies and gentlemen, Randy Scott. Ah, <laughs> uh, it was a little rainy that night, September 10th. I uh, sat in my doll-sized bedroom in my little West Village apartment. I took out my journal, and I wrote the following words. I wasn't worth the pain my death would cost. It's a line from a Dar Williams song about suicide, and suicide was all I had been able to think about for the past several months. I moved to New York straight out of college here in Kentucky with this dream of making it in the theater world. And for a while, it was going really well. I had this awesome day job at an internet startup company, and at night I produced, directed, wrote, and acted in plays at this tiny little theater in the East Village. But then the internet company folded, and I lost my job, and that little theater became embroiled in all the wrong kinds of drama, and then I lost my performance space, and so for six months I'd made neither money nor art. I felt pretty useless. I had put all of my time and energy into the stream. I had cultivated it so carefully, and there it was just dying, no matter what I did, and I felt like I might as well just die with it. 
I set my alarm for 9 o'clock the next morning. Uh, so not for 9 o'clock, for the next morning, because I had an appointment at the unemployment office to tell them all the things I was doing to try to find a job, which was absolutely nothing. And uh, it was supposed to be a really beautiful day. So I was going to walk, because it was just three quarters of a mile away. Um, so my appointment was at 9 a.m. at Five World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. And so the next morning, when my alarm went off, that, cl that like cloud of depression, it just clung to me. So I turned my alarm off, and I went back to sleep. And I didn't wake up till both my cell phone and my landline were just ringing off the hook from people who were terrified that I was dead. I'm not going to be melodramatic and say that I would have died had I gone down there, because Five World Trade Center was this squat little black building at the base of the towers. I didn't work on the 100th floor of anything, OK? But just knowing that one night I was wishing my life away, and the next morning I woke up and I could see 2,000 people dead in front of me. It's, it was just the worst feeling. You know, like, the world ended, and I was here standing, even though I didn't really want to be. And I thought, well, I should probably do something pretty good with this life, I guess. I always wanted to change the world, but I just thought I would do it through theater. You know, I thought I would write these plays, and I would show everybody a different perspective, but then only people with the exact same perspective as me came to see my plays in my tiny little theater. <laughs> so I needed a plan B. And uh, in early 2002, I was dating this guy, Dave. It was going pretty well. And uh, when I told him about this, he's, the answer was just so obvious to him. He said, I don't know why you don't become a teacher. Well, he knew that I had always loved school. I was that weird kid, like, skipping through the back-to-school aisles in early July, you know, and I loved working with kids. I found any excuse I could to volunteer with them because I found them to be much more entertaining and reasonable than most adults I knew, especially adults in the theater world. Oh, my God. Um, but I could not be a teacher. I grew up this huge, huge fish in this tiny pond of a town and everyone was just so sure I was going to make it big, you know, like at the very least I would win an award on national television someday, you know, but I, this wasn't for me. Now at the time there were these ads on the subway for the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, which is this program that takes people who want to switch careers and get into teaching and they put you through an intensive summer training program and then immediately in the fall you're teaching at an inner city school and they pay for your master's degree as long as you promise to stay in one of those schools, which honestly, it's a program to get warm bodies into schools where nobody wants to teach. But let's just say somebody wanted to become a teacher uh, this would be the fastest and cheapest route to do it. And those ads were so persuasive. They had like these really attractive young adults in these professional clothes and it would have quotes like, but you remember the name of your third grade teacher. Wouldn't you like to be remembered? And I was like, yeah, yeah I want to be remembered. And I would think about decorating my classroom or you know, developing curriculum that did not center around old dead white guys. That'd be really cool. Or like planting these seeds of hope in kids that were growing up in poverty or abuse and showing them a better life, which is exactly what my teachers had done for me. And then I'd be like, no, 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 you, no, you can't be a teacher because teachers make no money and everybody thinks they're lazy. They're just trying to get their summers off and they leave at three o'clock. And when you go back to Kentucky, do you really want people looking at you saying, well, you know, those who can't do theater teach? <laughs> and so for months I went back and forth and 
finally one day I said, you know what? On that day when you were left standing and everything was destroyed, you made a promise to make this world better. And the fact of the matter is, making the world better does not usually come with fame and fortune. So either do it or don't. So I said, okay. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I got online, and I looked at the application, and it was due the next day. And it was not an application you could do in a day because it required letters of recommendation and a college transcript and essay questions. And I started to sob because I couldn't believe that I let my ego get in the way of what I now knew was the perfect profession for me, of course, obviously. And so I said to myself, nobody ever told you this was going to be easy. So I dug my heels in, and I did it. I called professors and old bosses, and I got letters of recommendation emailed to me like within a couple of hours, and I found this old crumpled college transcript in my closet, and I wrote the essay questions, and this was 2002, so I went down to Kinko's, and I paid for copies and whatever, and then I got to the 24-hour post office near Penn Station in New York, and I got it in like just under the wire, and from that point on, I was obsessed. Like, did I make it? Did I make it? And I did into the next round because there are many rounds. If they're going to pay for your master's degree, they're not just going to say, here, come on, welcome into our program. And so the next round was me with a bunch of New York City teachers, and they were like, they seemed so grisly and hardened, like they'd seen things I couldn't imagine, you know, and they grilled me on things like culturally responsive teaching and trauma-informed care, and I pulled out that drama degree, and I improvised and acted like I knew what I was talking about, and I made it into the next round the last round, which was absolutely the worst round because I had to develop a lesson on my own and give it to a room full of adults instructed to act like children. So they threw paper wads and interrupted me and were awful and rude. And again, I was like, I can do this, you know, and I acted it out and I made it. I was a New York City teaching fellow. And from that point on, everything moved really, really, really fast. We got into the summer program, which was hours and hours of classes every day, and then we would student teach in summer school, and there was no money, no pay, <laughs> of course, and uh, I thought the summer program, they would teach us how to, you know, teach kids math or reading. No, it was boot camp to prepare us for what we were going into, because they knew that we had no idea what we were going into, and our instructor, Joanne, was probably in her late 20s, early 30s, but she seemed so wise, because she'd been doing this for a while. And she was this very special kind of loving that you only find in New York City, where we knew she cared about us. We knew she wanted us to do well, but she was so blunt, and she just told it like it was, you know. And so there are two speeches that Joanne gave that I'll never forget. And be because, I don't know if I mentioned that I have a drama degree. Did I mention that? Um, I have a drama degree. I paid a lot for it, so I do mention it. So I'm going to act out the two speeches that Joanne gave us that I'll never forget. Here's first. Okay, so obviously when you get to your school, you're going to want to be nice to everybody. You should be nice to everybody. But there are two people you're going to be very nice to, okay? So there's your school secretary. The school secretary does everything. She does everything. But the most important thing that she does is she is the one responsible for your paycheck. You piss her off, you're not going to get paid. Oh, oh, you think that's funny because you come from the corporate world where you're always going to get your paycheck. I am not making this up. You will not get paid. She lost the paperwork or there was a number wrong. No, no, you're going to compliment her on her outfit, her hair. If she's an asshole to you, you're going to act like you didn't even notice. You're going to be so nice to her. And the other person, the other person is your custodian, okay? You think you're working hard? They're working 10 times harder than you. There is no way they can clean all the classrooms in the time that they are given. They have to pick and choose their battles. They want your battle, you want your battle to be one that they're going to pick. 
And when a kid vomits in the middle of your lesson, which is going to happen more than you ever could have imagined, you want them to run to your classroom, not saunter. Okay, so buy them some chocolate, get them some nice Christmas gifts, learn about their lives and talk to them, okay? And then her second speech was this one. Every single time you leave your classroom, you're going to lock your door. Every single time. I don't care if you're stepping outside to sneeze, you're going to lock your door. If you don't, things are going to walk away. And I'm not talking about your wallet or your purse. You've got to watch that stuff. And I'm not talking about the kids. I'm talking about the teachers. Okay? Because you are going to make less than $30,000 a year in New York City. And you're going to spend 50% of that on your kids because you've got nothing. You're going to have no paper, no pencils, no books. These kids are going to come to you hungry. You're going to want to feed them. Okay? So you, everything you have, you guard it with your life because beg, borrow, or steal, that is our motto here in New York. And now, I am not telling you to steal because stealing is wrong. But let's say a teacher is dumb enough to leave their classroom unlocked and they have something that your kids, you do what you, you got to do. Okay. <laughs> So I, I thought, okay, she is exaggerating so that when we get into our schools, we'll feel like, oh, okay, it's not, it's not as bad as Joanne said, but my first day of teaching first grade in the South Bronx, PS 114, near Yankee Stadium, I was five minutes into the day, and I said, oh, my God, not only was she telling the truth, she was sugarcoating. This was actually sugarcoating because, holy crap, I did not know what I was in for. I mean, yes, I decorated my classroom, and I planned awesome curriculum that did not center around old dead white guys, and I could see that I was planting seeds of hope in these kids that really needed it. But I was also punched in the face, and I had a six-year-old who threatened to kill himself every single day, and I worked with a boy who witnessed his mother murder his brother. So he would uh, fall into fits of rage and screaming. I uh, went into debt because I spent so much of my money on my kids. I had something stolen from my classroom because I was stupid. But I was really nice to the secretary and to the custodians. Um, and every day I would go home and I would sob and I would cry. And I would think, oh my god, what is wrong with me? Why am I doing this to myself? And then every day I would think, on that day when you were left standing and all those other people weren't, you made a promise. And you've got to stick with this promise. So 15 years later, because I am certifiably insane, I moved up to middle school. So um, I have the chance to reach 150 lives a year, not just 30. And um, you know, I, I know that I'm probably never going to win an award on national television. Ah. Sorry, <laughs> but every year I get these notes and these letters and these hugs and kids coming back to tell me what I meant to them. And it's so much better than that, you know? Uh, sorry. <laughs> and I, you know, I realized that that dream that I had all those years ago, like it didn't die. It just went dormant in the soil for a while. And then when it rebloomed, it was more beautiful and grand than I could have imagined because you better believe I use that drama degree every single day of my teaching career. <laughs> and it just seeds just flor like flow from this, you know? And, and I just want to say that no matter how much Roundup our governor tries to spray all over this profession, all of us teachers, all of us, we are still standing. So happy Appre Teacher Appreciation Week. Please go thank a teacher at some point this weekend, <laughs> and thank you. <laughs>
and that's and that's a wrap. Yeah, and welcome back <laughs> on uh, on episode two of Double Edged Stories, the podcast. The podcast. Um, yeah, so um, I wanted to tell you really quickly before we kind of talk to you a little bit more about us. Um, that both Nini and I are going to be performing live, if you'd like to, to see some of that, um, July 23rd um, at Play here in Louisville with the uh, Courier Journal's Louisville Storytelling Project. Also a curated show. The stories are roughly 10 minutes, along with Stephen Michael Carr, who's been on our podcast before, and a couple of other incredible storytellers I don't know yet, but I'm looking forward to meeting. So, um, you know, make sure you get your tickets early for that show because it does sell out. Um, but we'd love to see you there. Um, one thing we've talked about before that we love about the Louisville storytelling scene is that it is not competitive. It is very much encouraging and nurturing of each right. other. So we don't see other shows as competition. We like we all explore different avenues of storytelling. And most of us love storytelling so much that we kind of go to all of the shows. Yeah. And you'll see people in each other's stuff on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. Which is kind of like where the creativity happens you know it's great any scene that has that is like a scene that's actually a good one to be in yeah well okay so our podcast this is the second episode we hope that you'll help us spread the word we are on itunes stitcher um spotify google play um and of course soundcloud um let us know if there's another platform you think we should be on we'd be happy to add that um please rate and review us um, if you're listening to us, uh, of course, that's going to help us get more listeners and it's going to help us to thrive. Yeah. Tell your friends um, all about us. And also the show is on Facebook and also is on Twitter and YouTube as well. So there are some stories on there yeah. that may or may not make it to the podcast that are still really good. And we have videos of stuff too. And Instagram and LinkedIn as well. So oh we're yeah. we're all over that that thing they call the interweb. Isn't that the young people call it the interwebs? Yeah. And we started um, doing workshops too to yes. teach storytelling. And we actually just completed our first our first one. Yeah. No, we've had two we've now had at two. this point. Yeah. yeah. So you want to learn how to do this? Well, talk to us. And, you know, Facebook is definitely the easiest way to keep up. But we also have an email, double-edged stories. That's all one word with no hyphen at gmail.com. Um, if you're interested in learning more about storytelling or you'd like to maybe be in our show, and we will get back with you. We need to finalize our fall date for our um, first show of the school year. So yes. we're teachers, so we that's how we look at the year. Um, and uh, so make sure you follow us for that. But we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, yeah, get in touch. Tell us what you think. Have a good day.